Welcome, this is the audio from our 2012 Mission Learning Commons focusing on cruciform leadership, paradigms, and practices. The Mission Learning Commons is a collaborative learning event for missional churches to share stories and encourage one another. The Mission Learning Commons is affiliated with the Ecclesia Network and Missio Alliance. This is the audio for our first session on How Our Approach to Leadership Shapes Community for Mission by J.R. Woodward, author of Creating a Missional Culture. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, what's up, Fitz? Can you tell everybody the hashtag is MLC12? Uh, MLC, so hashtag, if you're tweeting, uh, hashtag uh, MLC12. Missional Learnings Common 12. That way, if you have anything you want to tweet, everybody can kind of follow what you're doing. Well, yeah, so uh, you guys have a little, I actually, uh, just a little bit about myself that wasn't shared yet. Um, I became a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I don't, really, my whole family, as far as I can see, my mom's and dad's side, there was really no Christians, and uh, my aunt and I became Christians around the same time. I, I actually was at college right before my senior year. I found uh, Christ in my fraternity, like I'm sure most of you have, and uh, there was a a couple of guys in my fraternity who uh, had become Christians. They stuck around to kind of reach out to people like me, and uh, really I would say it was through hospitality that I started gaining an interest in Christ because I was working my way through school, but I couldn't really afford an apartment in in, uh, summer school at the same time. Happened to mention it to one of these guys was my older brother in fraternity. And he said, well, why don't you just come and stay with us for free? And I thought about it for about two seconds. I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And so I stayed with them. And, you know, when you live with someone, you get to know them even better. And they were just really the first Christians I met that provoked me to look into Christ. Because I had met Christians before, but nobody who really kind of made me interested, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, maybe it's a little bit of our topic tonight. Um, how might, might we, we could maybe improve that. Um, but... Uh, so anyway, it was, uh, I was an RA that first year. My, uh, I, I didn't know much of the scripture at all. I mean, I didn't even know David and Goliath, the kind of the common stories that people grew up with. I did know John 3.16, and that was enough to kind of give me a goal uh, to share with everybody on my hall before the end of the year and the other RAs so they can kind of reach their own parts of the dorm. But that's, I kind of jumped right into living, not necessarily theologically having the grasp of what missional church is today, but like... At that point, it was enough to kind of put me on mission and really been that way since. Probably four years into it, I found myself planting a church at Virginia Tech. So uh, heads up to those in Virginia there. And, um, and I, uh, through, through that time, God was raising up a lot of different leaders. And we, uh, we uh, long story short, we kind of ended up in L.A. and we've been planting churches there. So we have like three neighborhood churches, one in Hollywood, where I live, East Hollywood to be exact. Uh, Westwood, Antelope Valley, and then there's another one downtown. So that's a little bit about where I'm coming from. Um, I think uh, I want to start off with a, a verse that, uh, that I think we're all familiar with, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to read it from the message because I think it's a great way. It's a paraphrase, but it's a way we can hear it freshly. So Paul writes, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life... You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. 
Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And I obviously, you know, this text is relating to the larger culture around us, right? And the power it has to shape our behaviors, to conform it to itself, right? And, uh, but I think uh, we could also kind of just look at the power of culture in general. And, and what I'm talking about, and, and a lot of what the, the, the book is about, is the power of the culture of the congregation itself in shaping us. We create a culture, and that culture recreates us in the process. And I think as we think about discipleship, sometimes we have such an individualized approach that we've forgotten how powerful the, the community is itself in forming us. And so the question is, is the culture that we're creating cultivating a type of person who is living in the world for the sake of the world in the way of Christ. That's really what uh, a mature discipleship uh, approach is. Um, I think uh, we, we forget the hidden power of culture when it comes to uh, life transformation. So, we, And partly because individualism saturates our own culture around us, right? To the point that we don't no longer notice it. Uh, it Maybe individualism tells us we can be come like Christ uh, by ourselves or by nice three steps or self-help. And, uh, and so we have really no hope in that way of becoming like Christ if that's the case. In fact, it reminds me of an email I got the other day from a former student. The, the subject line re- read this. Lawyers should never ask a Mississippi grandma a question if they aren't prepared for the answer. <laughs> so there's in a trial, a small town, uh, a southern small town prosecuting attorney called this first witness and it was this grandmotherly, elderly woman to the stand and approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. <laughs> you lie, you cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. Well, obviously, the lawyer was quite stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he kind of pointed across the room to, to, and asked Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She again replied, well, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster as well. He's, he's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He, he can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practices is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention he, he's a cheater on his wife with three different women. One of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. <laughs> Well, the defense attorney nearly died, and the judge asked quickly for these two counselors to approach the bench in a very quiet voice. He says, if either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I'm going to put you both on the electric chair. (laughs) You know, what I want to ask you, uh, the the first question, okay, I'm going to approach this in a little bit of a Fitchian way. David Fitch, that is, you know, it's a a new terminology we use here, all right. Um, But... uh, I, which means I'm going to kind of make some strong contrast and kind of give you the, the correct view of the world and everything like that, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to ask it, the first question is like, what is it that you're aiming for when it comes to serving your church? What's the hopes of what your church is going to become? I mean, what are you aiming for? Because if you're kind of, we're, we're talking about approaches to leadership. And what I want to say uh, is that our approach to leadership creates a type of culture in a very powerful way. 
And, and, and again, that, that culture then shapes us to particular types of people. Does that make sense? So our approach to leadership or the structure, the way we structure the church shapes us. Do, do, do anybody, you know, I, I just think it's a powerful way to think. We don't often think about that. So if I want to have the largest church in the city, if that's my goal, I, I think hierarchy works really well. It does. I got a vision. I know where I want to go. I want to fill this church up with people, large church, good budget, big building. Hierarchy is probably your way to go. Now, you have to ask, what are all these people like? Are they kind of like the defense lawyers and the judge and all of that? Or are they more like Christ? What are you shooting for, in other words? Uh, what does, I want to kind of ask you, what does hierarchy give you? I'm going to try to paint, I would say, the typical approach that I understand, at least in the U.S., leadership uh, in the church. And I am painting a caricature of sorts. Obviously, no, no church, you know, every church has its nuances. And, and again, but this is my little Fitchian thing I'm doing, um, so I can get away with it because I'm just calling it Fitchian, right? Um, so the typical approach to leadership in the church, we have senior pastor, right? Associate pastors, youth pastor. I have it's a good-sized church. You can afford youth pastor, uh, secretary, and then what some call volunteers. Horrible name, in my opinion shapes us in all the wrong ways. but So the senior pastor, is sim- typically you're, you're coming up with a, a vision, right? Come down with, from Mount Sinai. That's kind of your job description. You kind of have the vision for the church. You come down, you get it. You're trying to get people on board with that vision. So one of the primary tasks, of course, is getting people to the service and getting people involved in programs that would hopefully help shape them to become more like Christ. That's, that would be the goal. And so, or maybe even seeking to meet some of the needs in the neighborhood in different ways. The knowledge and truth tend to reside in the senior leader. People get a sense of belonging from attending or uh, serving the church or attending some programs in the church. And, and maybe the primary language in regard to the church is we, it's something that we go to. Uh, I'm going to church, right? Anybody use that language? <laughs> Don't want to. Uh, but... Maybe the basic measurement tends to be counting people, money, and size of building. The more people, the more money. The larger building, the more successful the pastor. Would, would you, I mean, obviously, this is a characterization, but I think it kind of, that's one element. Uh, where does this approach to leadership, this hierarchical approach to leadership come from? I, I, I don't know, I haven't done the research. Actually, my PhD is going to be looking into that. <laughs> exactly where did this come from? My hunch is it looks strangely similar, similar to the CEO model of business. Um, what kind of people does it produce? Or maybe I should ask, what do businesses seek to have more of? Customers, right? Consumers. That's how they stay in business. So when we use this approach to leadership, is it any wonder why we have people filled, uh, our churches are filled with passive, needy, consumeristic people, kind of shopping around for the next bet, nice church, you know? Do we think that if we baptize the CE approach to leadership and structure, that we'll somehow get a different result? I, I, I think it's kind of silly to think about. I want to suggest that a hierarchical approach to leadership lends itself to a controlling leadership instead of releasing the spirit, a programmatic and individualistic approach to spiritual formation and being the church. And in regard to mission... It's often defined as, because it's often defined as inviting people to church, it actually can have the effect of extracting people from their locality and their everyday life so that they can have influence in that space. Because really the church is about coming to the meetings and serving in the church where you're pretty much extracted from all of your other spaces where you can naturally connect with people and be 
living as a sent person to a particular group of people. Again, this is a characterization. I'll let you be the judge on how accurate it might be. But I talked to people who worked in hierarchical structures, and this is a very common thing that they tell me. So a hierarchy approach to leadership does work. You have to ask, to what ends? I suggest it leads often to a passive, needy, consumeristic people, and often a less than Christ-like person, a leader in, this, in, the, in, in the process. Is it possible to have benevolent dictators? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I know of some in Hollywood, you know, but uh, I think there's examples of this. But I think the human hierarchy is a lot like the kings in Hebrew scripture, you know. We see the people wanting a king like other nations, and yet God wanted to be their king, right? And so he says, it's not that they've rejected, that it's not you they've rejected, talking to Samuel, but they've rejected me as their king. Now, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel warned them that the king would create a very powerful centralized government, send their, their sons to war, and then take the best of what he, they created for himself. He warned them that as this happens, they would come running back to God, but God wouldn't answer them. But in spite of this warning, people wanted the king. There is something in us as human beings that I, th- I think want uh, a physical, tangible mediator between us and God. Do, do you get that sense? I mean, it's kind of the person who comes like, who's, who's the pastor here? Who's in charge? Who's the senior pastor? That's what people come, and, and they want that kind of tangible sense. And I think uh, at the same time, you, you see this when, uh, when, Moses, uh, when Moses is calling all the people of Israel to come to the mountain uh, to hear God, because God wanted to speak to Moses and the people, and, uh, and, and at the same time, so you have the people, when, when the thunder and the smoke and all that was happening, they said, ah, we don't want, we, we, you know, this is too much for us. Moses, you go talk to God and come back to us. This is that type of thing. What's the benefit of that? What's the benefit of having kind of that type of leader and that's kind of just about like a mediator? I, I, I think like one of the benefits is that I can stay in perpetual adolescence and justify that. <laughs> now, it's also a benefit to the leader on the other side, because I, you know, I get some job security, right? So I, I mean, there's a little cynical way of looking at it, but as you take a look at the entire story of Scripture, from the Hebrew Scriptures to the Gospels to Revelation, I think you see that the, the polycentric leadership approach is very faithful to the narrative of Scripture. I, I go in the book through five contextual reasons for polycentric leaders. And uh, I talk about the media shift from print and broadcast to digital age, where we live in a more collaborative, open source environment. Shared leadership makes more sense than top-down styles. When considering the philosophical shift from modernity to post-modernity, I think shared leadership engenders a greater trust in those who are skeptical to truth and power. I mean, think about this. Most of the people are skeptical. I was skeptical to truth and power and cynical to power. And yet, how do we have our churches structured there's basically a person who looks like they have all the power proclaiming truth with a capital T. What's, what's wrong with that picture to the person who's living with that type of, uh, in that type of stream of thinking? Uh, science shift from classic science to emergent system science is demo- 
demonstrating quite clearly that organic decentralized structures are to be preferred over mechanistic centralized structures. There's the spatiality shift from rural to urban living, I think has created such demands that you need a team of leaders, to, uh, specialized leaders to kind of take care of really ministering in that city. And then of course you have the religious shift from Christendom to post-Christendom, which demonstrates, I think, the need for apostles, prophets, and evangelists, as well as pastors and teachers. And I would just want to say, those are some contextual reasons, but living contextually is not optional. I like the way Bosch puts it, if we take the incarnation seriously, the word has to become flesh in every new context. So spirit-shaped leaders create culture, and our approach to leadership and structure is not neutral. The culture shifts that, that I think uh, that I've highlighted here kind of highlight the vulnerabilities of hierarchical approach to leadership that should probably never have characterized the church in the first place. Tomorrow in our session on polycentric leadership, the 20 minutes I have there, we'll look more at the theological reasons for polycentric leadership. But the question I want to ask you again is what are you shooting for? What are you aiming for when it comes to you, the congregation that you serve? Well, if potentially a hierarchical kind of creates a certain type of people. What about flat leadership? There's a lot of young people today that really in reaction to hierarchical leadership, they're kind of wanting to go completely flat. But we know that like when we're flat, like usually a flat leadership structure tends to fall flat. And instead of controlling leadership, there's an absence of leadership. There, there's typically an anti-institutional approach to spiritual formation and being the church. And when it comes to mission, it's usually very unfocused and, uh, and confused. And so there's not a lot of things that happen. So my question is, what are you aiming for? What are you shooting for when it comes to the congregation you serve? Do you want to create a culture that builds mature missional disciples who live in the world for the sake of the world and the way of Christ? Do you want to, in the words of Stanley Havervas, to cultivate a people, listen to this definition, that who can risk being peaceful in a violent world... Risk being kind in a competitive society. Risk being faithful in the age of cynicism. Risk being gentle among those who admire the tough. Risk love when it may not be returned. Because we have the confidence that in Christ we have been reborn into a new reality. Think about your definition of what a mature Christian looks like. And ask yourself, is the way that you're structured... And the, your approach to leadership, is it going to produce that kind of person? It makes a big difference. We, what we do speaks louder than our words, doesn't it? So which kind of approach to leadership will cultivate those kind of people? A hierarchical approach? Um, some people's approach to being the church, some people's definition of success, basically cultivate something that's totally opposite of what Stanley Haberbus writes here. Or take, the, uh, you know, another mature definition is like just someone who lives in the spirit, you know, exudes joy, love, peace, joy, patience, all the, all the fruit of the spirit. So what about, uh, what about polycentric leadership? What does that give you? Obviously, again, characterizations here. But the beauty of polycentric leadership is that it's a relational group of people who learn to share responsibility, engaging in both leading and following, giving time for each person to be on mission themselves. Polycentric leadership models the inner relation of the Trinity, where there's this interdependent, communal, relational, participatory, self-surrendering, and self-giving approach to leadership. Polycentric leadership essentially lends itself to a relational approach to leadership, 
because we have to be in relationship, a communal approach to spiritual formation and being the church, and I think a more incarnational and dispersed approach to mission. And so you got to ask yourself, what, what kind of approach does our leadership kind of, what kind of people is it creating? Is this, is this making sense? Just summarize real quick. A hierarchical approach lends itself toward a little bit more controlling leadership, a programming and individualistic approach of being the church, and an extractional approach to mission. A flat approach to leadership often falls flat because it's absent of leadership. There's, there tends to be an anti-structural and institutional bias and a lack of cohesiveness when it comes to living out mission, whereas a polycentric approach lends itself to a relational leadership, a communal approach to being the church and spiritual formation, and I think an incarnational approach to mission. But what does polycentric leadership look like? The, the thing is, like, many of us haven't actually seen it in practice. Uh, anybody here? Well, we, I'm sure some people have, because they're, they're, some of us are going to share about that tomorrow. But I, I, here's the way I describe it. So as opposed to hierarchical or flat, polycentric leadership, one way to illustrate it is think of a, a jazz band. A jazz band is of a mature musicians. They're skilled in their craft. And, and, and when they kind of get into the groove, the, the lead instrument revolves, right? It's, but it takes mature, skilled people to do that. So that's kind of, I'm giving you the image of kind of, a, you know, at a mature level here. Um, secondly, maybe another way, if you're a biker, uh, you know, if you're on the same team and you're biking and you kind of create that draft where one person kind of takes that lead role, creates a draft for the other, and then you kind of rotate around so that you can kind of get to your distance quicker, or, or you've got to have the, the famous uh, geese, right? The geese that fly in the V. What, what, it, what, it, what the polycentric leadership isn't, isn't like all, like all the geese flying at the same level the whole time, you know, to where they're going. No, they're flying in the V. They're point geese, but it's revolving. It's not the same geese the whole time, the whole way. Does that make sense? So these are just little images, illustrations of what I kind of consider polycentric leadership. It... There's a value of leadership, but there's not kind of putting one person to have to wear the ring that maybe only Christ was meant to wear. Um, what does it look like when we look at the scripture? I think we could look at Ephesians 4 and see Paul giving, I think Paul, Ephesians is one of, really one of the latter letters that Paul wrote, other than the pastorals, and I think it was after a lot of experience, and he's trying to kind of uh, he's not, it's not a situational letter necessarily addressing problems, but I think he's given his best picture of what the church looks like. And when he gets to, after kind of seeding us with Christ and putting us in a different culture, if you will, a culture of love and grace, and, and knowing that he's kind of, through Christ, creating this new humanity, Jew and Gentile together, when he gets to kind of where the rubber meets the road, he starts first with our attitudes in Ephesians 4. He, and then he moves to an early creed, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, so there's this unity sense, one, 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 one. And then, uh, then he talks about how he's, Christ himself has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that they equip the whole body. The whole body is activated, and they grow up to the full stature of Christ, right? So Paul is basically saying there's these five kinds of people. As they're equipping the whole congregation to live out who they are, we, they, there's unity that's developed, and there's maturity, it's one of the places where we see Paul tying maturity to, um, to the five equippers. And I think it's a, for that reason we ought to be paying attention to it. Um, I, I, what I want to do kind of in this last part of our time here before we kind of open it up, um, 
I want to give a quick picture of the different equippers, and uh, I want to kind of talk a little bit about practically, getting real, a little bit practical on how I feel like this kind of can work out in a situation. One of the common things I get is like, uh, as people kind of read and be more convinced of a polycentric leadership approach, I say, oh, what, what do I do? Like, I, I'd like to get there, but how do I get there? And I, I like to try to address that. But I've, I've given nicknames to each of these five equippers, uh, partly because they all come with a bit of baggage, right? Apostle, like, you know, do we really want to say, hi, my name is, you know, I'm an apostle, you know, or a prophet. Each of them have a little bit of baggage. Um, evangelist, it doesn't really matter. Um, we call everybody pastor, and some people aren't pastors that have that name, right? That's not their primary role. Um, so I, I give the, and, and this kind of helps me define them too. So the apostle, I call a dream awakener. Essentially, they help people and communities awaken to their God-given dream and live it out. They just help people live out their calling and communities live out their calling. And, and you could say they're, the telos that they're kind of moving the community to is creating a discipleship ethos because they're concerned about multiplication of disciples, churches, and you know, creating movements, if you will, and then calling people to participate in advancing God's kingdom. They, they tend to be the, the, the person out on the edge trying to kind of get the good news into spaces where it currently isn't. That's kind of what they've always been doing. So the prophet I call a heart revealer because they reveal the heart of God and, and the heart of the people. And uh, they're, they're basically trying to help people pursue God's shalom. That's their focal concern. They're calling the church to God's new social order, and they're, helping, um, they're, and they're basically helping people stand with the poor and the oppressed. So that's a bit of the, the prophet. The evangelist I call a storyteller. Um, because they know how to tell the story of God in such a way that everybody realizes you're a part of the story. You know, you're either a good guy or bad guy, good girl or bad girl in the story, but everybody's a part of it, and they kind of want you to be a part of, of the, the good part. And their, their focal concern is helping people incarnate the good news and proclaim the good news by being witnesses, okay? Being witnesses. It's, it's being witnesses, and then as we are who we, you know, as we're kind of sent, as we understand our sentness, and we're just kind of, the, the being comes before doing, and the doing comes before proclaiming. But they kind of, that order is typically what you find in the New Testament. Being witnesses and being redemptive agents. The pastor I call soul healer, because they're essentially helping people seek wholeness and holiness, working through past hurts, just embodying reconciliation. I mean, just getting along, you could say. Um, that, that's part of the job, creating a sense of family. Um, the teacher I call light giver, and they're, they're, kind of core focus is, is helping people inhabit the sacred text, okay? So they're, they're helping people immerse themselves in the scripture and live faithfully in God's story. So there's a hermeneutical edge to the teacher as well. But they're basically giving light to the text itself. You, you listen to a teacher and you feel, ah, I kind of understand what this is saying. All right, so how does this all work? I, I would say that Every, every, uh, when I talk about in the book a cultural web, there's kind of four questions that flow from this cultural web. I don't have time to go into the, all of the cultural web, but the narrative is kind of what is God's calling for our church? Rituals is what are our core practices? Uh, institution deals with the question, how are we going to fulfill our calling? What are the, what's the structures? What's the systems? That's what we've been talking about. Leadership kind of falls in that part. Um, and then ethics is what does it mean to be faithful and fruitful? Again, that's probably where we need to start. That's where I'm kind of hitting you now, is what, what's the aim of, of, your, of your congregation? If you want, what does being faithful and fruitful look like? I think having a, a mature 
missional disciple and kind of having a concrete vision of that is very important because it will shape every other thing. It'll shape the type of practices that you have. It'll shape your approach to leadership. It'll shape your structure because all of those things reshape us in the process. So I, I, my, I'm a pretty much, I think everybody has to look at how do you approach, approach discipleship at different social levels, okay? Sociologists kind of talk about four levels. You have the intimate, which is like two or three people that you're really open and vulnerable to. You have your personal, which is kind of like 12 people that you can kind of be, uh, you know, fairly open to. You have the social, which is probably more like 20 to 50 people. And then you have the public, which is a larger group. It could be as large as going to a Lakers game and high-fiving somebody that you don't know. Uh, I think you have to ask yourself, which, which, what does discipleship look in each of these spaces? And I, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of like a mid-sized group to be the kind of group uh, where you actually can kind of create practices that reflect each of the five different equippers because each of them brings something different to the body. And if you want to, why does Paul kind of pick out these five? Well, who is kind of the archetypical apostle? Who, who is the kind of the, the, the primary prophet? Who is the evangelist, pastor, and teacher? I mean, Jesus is. So how do we expect that we can look more like Jesus if we don't have these five type of people operating in the community at the very core thing that you're multiplying? And so for me... In L.A., one of the things I did is, like, I, I wanted to start one of these mid-sized groups with really no, no leadership. It was kind of just an experiment. And I wanted to see if these different five people would kind of show up at least in, a, in the early stages, if you know what I mean, a budding evangelist, a budding apostolic person, a budding prophet, okay? And so we did this. And, and, and uh, the first, uh, we, we, I think we had four or five people the first meeting. Um, all we did to start this off was we, we had dinner and then someone shared their story for about two hours. That's just what happened. People were very vulnerable. Now me, kind of with kind of more of an apostolic orientation to life, I would listen to the story for this person's passions. What, you know, I'm looking for their calling. What, what has God put in them that I can call out of them? See, here's kind of the difference when it comes to approach to leadership. Oftentimes in a hierarchical approach, we, we have a vision, and we kind of call people to that, and we pull people, and we pull. And, and eventually, sometimes people feel like a cog in our own wheel, right? But I think uh, this, uh, when you have a polycentric approach, you're really trying to understand what has God put into this person. What's the vision that's in their heart, and how can I kind of bring that out of them? And who else can be a part of that vision so that I can help them see it happen? You see, the, that's, a, that's a little bit of a difference in approach and structure, and it, it really does shape things in a whole different way. Um, so I'm kind of looking. Uh, our, our group is kind of growing. Uh, by the time uh, six months down the road, we're, you know, it was like 20, 25 people. Again, we're just still sharing stories. Now, so for the person who's kind of teacher, who's really into Scripture and wants our group to immerse in Scripture, they start asking, hey, when are we going to study the Bible here? You know, we're just kind of listening to people's stories. Um, partly that's also because people, most people are just used to Bible studies, and that's about all they get. Um, <laughs> but... Then, but that also might be indicative of this person being a teacher, right? Uh, other people, hey, aren't we going to go out and kind of serve the neighborhood in some way? Aren't we going to, or someone else, you know, aren't we going to kind of help other people become Christians? Or, you know, different people started having different concerns. And usually that's another kind of backdoor way to know your own gifting. If you're in a context 
and you find yourself saying, man, I wish our church would be more missional and people getting out there and really doing the work of mission, it might indicate that you're evangelist and you're supposed to equip the congregation by being an example and pulling people along and doing that. Essentially, what we found is like when we started, ah, let's go ahead and have a work through a book of the Bible. That's what we did second phase of our group. And what was fascinating is to see how some of the people in the group were so articulate and so much passion as it relates to scripture, you felt like you were understanding the scripture, you could see some budding teachers. When it comes to some of the other things and serving the neighborhood, you started to see people with a real passion to see God's kingdom become more real in the neighborhood in a concrete way. And they could have been more like the prophetic type people. And so we started to kind of see this happen in our group. And we also then started to kind of work through very concrete practices as it related to each of the equippers. Um, I talk about that in the book. I don't think I have time to address it tonight, maybe in the Q&A. But I want to kind of go to the last question I want to hit in this time here. And, and that is like, I, I think there's a lot of concrete things to how this kind of works, and I address a lot of it in the book. But I think I, I want to ask the question, what is it that kind of hinders our desire to kind of move toward a different approach to leadership. And I would suggest as I kind of read through the Gospels that it might be that we tend to find our value more in our role and our title than maybe in who we are and whose we are. Would that be a fair assumption that we kind of struggle with this? Um, and I think maybe to address this question, I want to look at John 13 uh, a guy named Gil Irwin and James Fleming greatly shaped this particular understanding of my, of my understanding of this chapter. But the chapter begins this. It was just before the Passover feast. Okay, this lets us know that this was a high energy time here, sort of like Christmas in a sense. And things were hectic for a lot of people, right? It says, then Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave his world and go to the Father. Jesus always had a good sense of timing, you know? And timing is really important, Right? Because you can do the right thing at the wrong time and it becomes the wrong thing. So, for example, maybe you have a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend and you give them their birthday present a month early. <laughs> um, you know, thanks for the car. That's very thoughtful and very early. Um, or I can't believe you forgot when my birthday was, uh, depending, of course, on the value of the gift that accompanied it. But, um, but Jesus had a good sense of timing. He knew when his time had come and when it hadn't. And then it says this in, in John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love or loved them to the end. I mean, let that statement kind of stick with you a while. He showed them the full extent of his love. When I read that, I'm thinking this must be an incredible thing we're about to see here. Jesus is going to show the full extent of his love. What's about to happen? Then it says the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So now we have a villain in this story. This story is developing very rapidly. When, when you read a novel or a short story, the first chapters or the first paragraphs kind of give you a sense of what it's going to be, right? Um, you know, if it begins, it was a dark and stormy night, you know it's going to be a, a scary book. And so the first three verses of this chapter sets the stage for us so that we can understand what's going to happen. We already know it's Passover time. Jesus had a good sense of timing. He knew his time had come. We know he's getting ready to show the full extent of his love. They were actually eating a Passover meal, and the evening meal was being served, and now we have a villain in the story. Then it says this, Jesus knew 
that the Father had put all things under his power. All right, sorry. we're all looking at that picture there. All right. He had all power. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what, what's, what in the world is he about to do? Why is he telling us that he has all power unless something's going to happen to show that power? Incredible. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. In other words, Jesus knew who he was. You know, keep that in mind. That's an important thing. So here we have this incredible beginning here. Jesus was going to go to show the full extent of his love. He had all power and he knew who he was. Why, why did John tell us this? Let, let's stop here and think for a minute. When you know who you are, you never have to prove anything, and you can never lose face when you know who you are, right? For instance, you know, you've got Romeo or the Casanova type who has this long string of conquered women, and the world says, oh, you know, what a man. But the fact is he's not sure he's a man, and so he has to keep proving himself. That's, that's the very nature of this syndrome, you know? Because if you know who you are, you don't have to prove anything, and you can't lose face. If you're beautiful and you know it, and someone comes to you and says, you're ugly, you don't automatically think, oh, you know, gosh, I guess I must be ugly. No, like, that person must be blind, you know? If you're intelligent and you know it, and someone comes to you and say you're dumb, you don't go away thinking, I, I thought I was intelligent, but I just found out I was dumb. No, you kind of feel sorry for that person because they're ignorant, right? You see, when you know who you are, you never have to prove anything, and you can never lose face. The problem is, how do we know who we are? That's maybe the problem, and it's not easy. You know, when I was just a teenager at an early age trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man, you know, sometimes I was uncomfortable to be out with my mother, especially when we would get in situations where we'd go shopping or something, and she would get a bunch of things in her hands, and she would say, here, JR, can you carry my purse? You know, and I'm kind of like carrying it in a funny way because I didn't want anybody to think I actually knew how to carry this thing, you know? Um, why would it bother me? you know, carrying your purse. Well, because I was kind of sensitive to what other people's comments and opinions are. So I know what it means to be a man now. I know what it means to be a man of God. But, but it is, isn't, isn't easy. So how do we know? How did Jesus know who he was? Did he kind of just run a poll? You know, uh, I'm trying to find out who I'm in. Who, who, do you, who do you think I am? Undecided, I'll put that down. No. He heard his father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We need to know deep down in the depths of our soul who our creator thinks we are and rest in that. See, Jesus knew who he was, and he never had to prove anything. This was one of the reasons, not all of them, that when people would say to him after he healed them, oh, you're the Messiah, and he's like, ah, don't, you know, kind of keep that down. He, he might, you know, if it was me, I'm, you know, we, or some of us, you know, yeah, you know, help me get the word out. I need a little bit of fame. Maybe I'll start a healing crusade, whatever, you know. Um, Jesus wanted to please his father, and he didn't want fame to get in the way. Interesting. You have to know who you are to do that. He also had all power. What would you do if you had all power? I mean, sometimes we dream of that, don't we? Power. Power is what makes the world go around, you know? If I had all power, I wouldn't have to worry about taking out the garbage, cleaning the house, cooking, doing laundry, or getting caught speeding. But you've heard the power, the statement, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. It's true with humans. I haven't found that to be the case any other than that. No one to disprove that. I've watched the working of power in my own life, and I've seen how corrupting it can be. 
Um, and here is Jesus with absolute power, all power in danger of corruption. And yet we know that power can lead to corruption. We still long for it and we dream of it. And here's Jesus, all the power in the universe is coursing through his vein. I mean, just think about the incredible power. Think of the, he, that flung billions of galaxies into space, that incredible power coursing through his veins. Just think about it. Can you see it? Can you see it working? And so he gets up from that table and he throws off his outer garments and he goes to those guys who had been arguing over who's the greatest and he goes up to there and before we get to that, let me, let me just deal with one thing here. I kind of want to, we've kind of seen this picture here of Leonardo da Vinci's painting. Um, he was obviously a wonderful artist. Um, he's a great painter, incredible piece of art, terrible theology. It's not the way it looked. So if you were permit me, I'm going to correct Leonardo today. And if I were writing on a board, you could know that I'm not an artist. But if you were looking at the table back in that day, Oh, I gotta turn this on. There we go. There we go. <clears throat> if you're looking at the, the, the Last Supper, this it, this is basically the type of table that they sat at. It's called the Roman triclinium. Um, it was found in most most common table found in that day, primarily found in finer homes, uh, which is where Jesus and the disciples met for supper. It was a low table. You didn't sit like at tables we do today, but they would be more reclining at the table. So they would recline on their left elbow, and they would eat uh, with their right hands, reclining on each other through on pads or pillows. And then they would kind of, you know, that, maybe there's some places, uh, Middle Eastern cuisines in L.A. that kind of have these type of tables even today. But it's a Roman triclinium. And the way the seating was arranged, according to archaeologist and theologian Dr. James Fleming, is like you would basically have... That's a basically have the head table was here so you have <clears throat> you basically have the host the, the 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 guest of honor up here and then per, the person of first importance here and then essentially what happened is they, they had to kind of arrange themselves uh, according to who is the greatest down to the lowest person who sat here so that's that's kind of the the situation here um, when Jesus says when you go to a banquet which seat should you take we're supposed to take the lowest seat, right? So that if we get the lowest seat, the host comes, oh, what are you doing here? You should be coming over here. Or if you take maybe the high seat and you weren't meant to be there, then you kind of feel embarrassed because, oh, I'm sorry, somebody else was supposed to be here. We need to take you over here. And uh, now there's a number of things we know from history and archaeology about this table. For, for instance, we know the person of first rank, again, would, would recline there. The host would recline there, and then the people all the way down the lowest rank. There's given, I want to place kind of four people that we have in the story, uh, because I think we can know where they are sitting. And then there's the other people, we, we don't know exactly where they're sitting, but then we know they were somewhere in this thing. So, uh, so we know, for instance, that Jesus would have served as a host. So we'll put him down there. We're not going to go through this again. All right. There. We got Jesus. Um, and then, you know, it's hard to be number one without letting someone know that you're number one. And so this person kind of tells us where he sat. He said to himself that he was the disciple that Jesus loved who leaned against his breast, you know. Who would that have been? John. Oh. <laughs> this is not going to be good. <laughs> right. Yeah, we can't do this all the time. All right. 
And then, uh, all right, so here. So we noticed, John, we also know who the guest of honor was because basically the custom back then in some ways continues today. I think you'll understand. Jewish people, obviously, for them, eating with something, eating with someone was very important. It was more than just kind of having food. It was kind of like we're community. This is why Jesus was ridiculed for eating with the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, right? And, uh, and we, for us, maybe it's not a big deal. But the highest form of what would happen when the, is when the, co- the host and the guest of honor would eat, they would eat from the same bowl. This was the highest of honor. It was kind of the ultimate saying, you and I are, are one. And they would dip in the same bowl. And the host would usually begin the banquet by taking the, the, the first bit, bite in his hand and putting it in the mouth of his guest of honor. And, to, and it's a way to say, you do me honor. And most of you know who this was, right? Who, who got the, the, the first bite, who dipped the bowl in the, with Jesus? Who was that? Judas. Please don't go away. <laughs> All right. How did I, I don't know how I did that, all right. So we get put, let's put uh, Judas here, all right. So we know, again, who the other people at the table were, but we don't know where they sat until we get down to this person who's in the last place. And maybe I'll just kind of keep it this. Because at one point, Jesus says, which one of you will betray me? And they said, is it I, is it I, is it I? And then it says, the man that signaled across the table and said, ask him who it is. Who, who was that? That was Peter. So some people might say, you know, what is Peter? One last time. <laughs> My goodness. All right. All right. This is good. We learn where everybody's at. <laughs> Very slowly. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right. We'll end with that one. Um, I mean... Peter's probably thinking, this is no place for a pope, you know. Uh, but here he is. What, why, why, why is Peter here? I think uh, there are three theories, okay. The first one, I don't believe is true, but the first theory is that Jesus seated him this way. And, you know, it's possible. Maybe he said, John, you come here, I still love you. Judas, you sit here, I'm going to give you another chance. And Peter, I want you over there where I can see you, boy, you know. Now, the reason I, I don't believe this is true is it, it makes a lot of sense to me the first time I heard it, but we find in Scripture records the disciples are constantly arguing over who is the greatest. Even at this moment, before they're coming to the table, they're arguing over who's the greatest. If Jesus seated them by rank, there would have been no argument, right? Ah, this is where Jesus seated me. You know, you're going to have to deal with him. But do, do you remember, you know, it's kind of when, when you're younger and maybe... Uh, if you had any brothers or sisters and you're going someplace and the way we kind of, everybody wants to sit in the front seat. And so we, if we say first, you know, we get the front seat and the other guys have to get in the back seat. Uh, that's kind of like an apostolic argument. Who's going to be first here? Um, this kind of, I, I, so I, I don't think, I don't think that's, that works. But what brings us to the second theory, which this was the result of their argument. Okay. Maybe Peter started the argument and lost it. I can kind of hear him saying, well, well, wait a minute, guys. Who was with them on the Mount of Transfiguration? And they would say, yeah, and who got it all wrong and wanted to build three tabernacles? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, who had the revelation that he was the Messiah? Yeah, and to whom did he say, get behind me, Satan? Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Well, who walked on water? Yeah, yeah, and who sank? You know, maybe, maybe he lost the argument, and that's why he ended up in the back here. Well, that brings up a very interesting question. And what is it that Judas is doing here in the guest of honor seat? I mean, we have Judas all wrong, don't we? I mean, we don't understand Judas. I think Judas was one of his top guys. 
I think he was an individual that was respected by all of the people. I mean, have you chosen, ever chosen a treasurer for your church or your club? I mean, how did you choose them? Did you look for someone who was beady-eye and shifty and an obviously criminal type, you know, with his left hand clutching the money bag? I mean, but that's how we see Judas, isn't it? When I say the word Judas, I mean, what pops up in your mind? A beady-eyed, shifty character. But he wasn't any more than the treasure you would pick to hold and be in charge of all of your cash. You would choose someone who's upright and honest, a top faithful person, and that's who Judas was. So when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, which direction do you think everybody's eyes went, toward Judas or toward Peter? Now, the real theory that I believe is one slight variation. You see, again, they were arguing before they got to the table, who is the greatest? And Jesus, with this incredible patience, one more time steps in and teaches them about who the greatest in the kingdom is. Guys, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then be a servant. If you want to be the greatest, then be everyone's slave. I think Peter probably said, you know, that's right. I'm going to sit here in the lowest place, and I think everybody here knows why. But when you're in a, take a position like that, and you don't know who you are, you're uncomfortable, and you do anything you can do to prove that you don't belong there. You know, a friend of mine had a teacher in high school who was a phenomenal teacher, excellent teacher, but he did one thing that he just didn't like. Every six weeks, he would issue out grades, and then he would seat people according to their grade in the classroom. And so the, the right front seat was the top grade all the way back to, if you will, idiot's row. Now, I want you to picture yourself getting the top grade in the class. The teacher kind of puts you in that top chair, and you sit there as kind of the teacher seats the lesser ones. So he finishes the seating arrangements. You're kind of proud of yourself sitting in the front seat, and he turns to the class and starts the lecture. Then all of a sudden, there's this girl comes in the door who's a transfer student. He looks at her and says, oh, my gosh, you know, we're, we're moving like lightning in this class. You're, you're months run behind already. Why don't you grab this first seat? And JR, why don't you go and find another seat? Uh, yes, sir. And, uh, and you go back, and the only available seat is the last part of the idiot's row. Now, that would probably not be too big of a deal, except the fact that everybody who visited that class knew how this professor seated people. And they would look around real quick, and they would say, oh, you know, too bad, JR, there's an idiot's row. If, if we were back there and a, and a guest lecturer would come, we'd probably do everything to prove that we didn't belong in that place. So here's Peter, but he's uncomfortable. In fact, the whole table is uncomfortable. I mean, any time you're at a situation and you're comparing yourself with other people, and uh, any time you're thinking, well, they just don't appreciate who I am, or I don't get thanked for what I do around here, there's tension at the table any time we compare ourselves to other people. Now, here's one more thing that we need to remember. Every age, every culture, every generation has a series of events that we don't have a name for, but sociologists do. They call them greeting rituals. For instance, if I were to go today and knock on Dave and Ray Ann Fitch's house, you know, he's probably not going to think, oh, someone knocked on the door. Now, now, what are our greeting rituals again? Well, Fitch might say that, but no. <laughs> no, you just kind of know that, right? You come to the door, JR, you know, how's it going? Come on in and uh, have a seat. Would you like, a, you know, something to drink, a, a cup of coffee or something? Um, you know, that's the greeting ritual. Now, if this were 2,000 years ago, things would be a little bit different. We wouldn't knock on the door. We'd kind of like <laughs> clap our hands. 
And, you know, they would say, JR, it's good to see you. And he would kiss me on both cheeks. He would bring me in. He would seat me. And if I were especially welcome, he would anoint my head with oil. That's kind of what you did if you really wanted to welcome someone. Uh, They would take a bottle of oil, they would pour it on your head, and they would slick it down. I mean, this was before the days of shampoo and blow dryers, but this was a very soothing, cleansing, honoring thing to do. It had its benefits. Now, if I were to leave Fitch's house today, nobody would necessarily know how kind he was to me. But if it were 2,000 years ago and my head was anointed, everyone would know somebody loves that dude. I mean, look at his greasy hair, you know? But there's one more thing that was a part of the greeting ritual that we have no correlation to today, and that, consequently, we don't understand it. If this were 2,000 years ago, there's one more thing that Dave and Rayanne would do, and that was that they would wash my feet. And if it had been too long, too much of time had gone by since my feet was washed, then, then, and you're someone's guest, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable in that space, Right? And since hospitality is the art of making people feel comfortable, you'd comfort your guests, you would wash their feet. It it happened to be the lowest job in the house. If a man owned any slaves, it would be the lowest slave that would wash the people's feet. If he didn't own any slaves, if he was too poor, the host himself would wash feet, but it would be a public admission of his low estate. Let me throw one additional hitch into this to help you understand. I'm not going to ask you the question. I don't want you to is a rhetorical question here, but what do you consider the dirtiest part of your body? Because back then, the bottom of your feet was the dirtiest part of the body. To this day, if you go to Arab countries, if you were to sit away to expose the bottom of your foot, it would be like kind of giving them a finger. So now you understand that there's this tension in the room. Because they're here they're at, their t- at the table, and nobody's feet have been washed. I mean, I have an idea of what might have been going on here. I can hear John saying, why isn't Peter washing feet? And I can hear Peter saying, you know, I'm not washing feet. If I wash feet, they think, they'll think I belong here. And I maybe the, guy, the people in the middle, you know, why doesn't somebody do something? So what did Jesus do? With all the power of the universe coursing through his vein, I mean, just think about this incredible power that flung billions of galaxies into outer space, all of this incredible power surging through his vein, he gets up that table, he throws off his outer garments, he goes over to those guys who've been arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, if I were Jesus, I might have said the next words is, not he straightened them out. But those aren't the next words, are they? It says he began to wash their feet. Oh, so that's what you do when you want to show the full extent of your love. So that's what you do when you have all power, but you don't want to be corrupted by the power. So that's what you do when you know who you are. So my question is, what are you shooting for? And which approach to leadership will cultivate the kind of people that look more like Jesus, who live in the world, the sake of the world, in the way of Christ? Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the 2012 Missional Learning Commons. For more information, see missionalcommons.org.